I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. And welcome to OK, let me tell you why you're wrong. This week, we're diving right back into Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. And let me assure you, we are now entering some pretty juicy territory. Well, at least as juicy as Adam Smith gets. So let's crack open book one, chapter four of The Origins and Use of Money. Ah! I see that got your attention. Uh, there, uh, you know, with the word money, and and I'm sure some of you are uh, relieved, probably saying, "Finally, we're actually going to start talking about economics here instead of just going on about pins and nails and ships and whatever else." Well, to refer back to the title of the show, let me tell you why you're wrong. Money certainly has a fair amount to do with economics, but it probably has less to do with it than you think. Back when I was taking classes in economics, it was a good long while before we ever introduced money into the mix. Why? Well, because economics lies in the point of exchange, rather than necessarily in the method of exchange. And that's what money is, a method, or to use the economic term, a medium of exchange. In fact, the economic definition of money consists of, of three parts. It is a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. Now as we go on, we'll, we'll get into each of these, but I, I wanted to lay that out up front just to get your heads in the right place. because. Some of what Smith talks about in this chapter, strange as it may be to say, may be a bit mind-blowing to some people out there. So why do we have money? 
It's one of those questions that we, we tend not to ask ourselves, like, when was shampoo invented? Money has just, well, always been around. And it's so integral to everyday life that we just sort of tend not to question it. But obviously, someone, at some time, must have invented money. Which means that there was a time prior to that where money did not exist. And this is where Smith... Ugh. Sorry about that, folks. And this is where Smith starts us off in this chapter. He sets the stage by saying, <clears throat> quote, when the division of labor has been once thoroughly established, it is but a very small part of a man's wants which the produce of his own labor can supply. He supplies the far greater part of them by exchanging that surplus part of the produce of his own labor, which is over and above his own consumption, for such parts of the produce of other men's labor as he has occasion for. Every man thus lives by exchanging or becomes in some measure a merchant, and the society itself grows to be what is properly a commercial society. Okay, nothing that shocking yet. Basically, because none of us can truly provide all of our wants and needs by ourselves, we focus on our one job, and then exchange the extra produce of our job for the extra produce of others in order to live in a society where everyone's wants are met. But taking it back to that ancient point in history, Smith points out that, quote, when the division of labor first began to take place, this power of exchanging must frequently have been very much clogged and embarrassed in its operations. That's a bold statement. Any guesses as to why that might be? Oh, feel, feel free to shout them at your radio or phone now. I'll wait. By the way, those of you commuting by train or bus, you probably just freaked out some of the other passengers, so maybe take it down a notch. Anyway, if you shouted that there would be significant logistical issues with this early economy, then congratulations, you are correct. Think about it. A pure exchange economy works fine in theory. I make whatever I make, and you make whatever you make, and we come together and exchange those things at an agreed-upon rate of exchange, which is otherwise known as the price, should work out just fine. It's when you bring this idea into reality, like so many other ideas, that problems start to crop up. First, let's say that I produce wheat, and you produce cattle. Between the two of us, we can make a pretty decent, if not entirely healthy, meal. No vegetables. But what happens if I want some of your cattle, but you don't want my wheat? Instant market failure. Now this is to say nothing of the further issue uh, that is in this pure exchange economy, we would all have to spend a fair amount of our day either traveling around to each person who was specializing in a particular good and striking bargains, or have everyone haul their produce, uh, of the produce of their labor, down to a centralized market in order to exchange there. And again, that's going to take up a lot of your day. Well, 
Smith supposes this kind of arrangement quickly became a headache for all of those involved, and so a solution was created. He says that in those early, uh, the, that these early barterers, quote, must naturally endeavor to manage his affairs in such a manner as to have at all times by him, besides the particular produce of his own industry, a certain quantity of some one commodity or other, such as he imagined few people would likely to refuse in exchange for the produce of their industry. So there lies our solution. I've still got wheat, you've still got cattle, and I still want cattle, and you still don't want wheat. But I'm carrying something else on me that everyone, including you, wants. Say, salt. I can exchange wheat for salt elsewhere, and then salt for cattle with you. Which means I can just exchange most of my surplus wheat for salt, and then use salt to trade for everything else that I want. Salt here has the value of being universally accepted. And by being so, it now becomes not just a commodity, but also a currency. It's our little society's medium of exchange. And that's how it likely started. Just as people trying to simplify their lives and spend less time bartering to get what they wanted. Smith takes us on a, on a bit of a world tour of, of early currencies, citing that one of the earliest known references to a medium of exchange actually comes from Homer. In referring to the arm, armor of Di, uh, Diomede uh, costing only nine oxen, while the armor of Glaucus cost a hundred oxen. So, in Homer's day, it would appear that cattle was the, or at least a, common medium of exchange. My salt reference wasn't completely pulled out of thin air either, because the Abyssinians would use salt for their exchanges. Uh, early Indian society was said to use certain type of shells. Dried cod was currency in Newfoundland, tobacco in Virginia, and sugar in the Caribbean. The exact item isn't truly important just so long as everyone in the society accepts it. In that acceptance, the item's power for the purpose of exchange becomes realized. But of course, we aren't making transactions today in dried cod, because even dried, that would start to smell after a while. Smith points out that, quote, in all countries, however, Men seem, at last, to have been determined by irresistible reasons to give the preference for this employment to metals above every other commodity. Which begs the question, why metals? Well, many of you out there would say that it's because metals have innate value, so it makes perfect sense that they would be then what you would want to use as currency. And people who think that would be wrong. Oh, so wrong. This is one of those arguments from that, that, that you often hear from uh, armchair economists. You know who I'm talking about here. Pe people who have no background or knowledge of economics, but have, have somehow established for themselves unassailable opinions about economics. This is one of those things that they will say and expect no argument, because of course it's true. 
it makes sense. Except, no. Metals do not possess any kind of innate or universal value. They are only as valuable as the various practical uses for them. They are not magical in any way. Let me give you an example. Let's let's use a a post-apocalyptic scenario. Uh, the you know the kind that so many uh, preppers are gearing up for. In a world, wait. <clears throat> this is a great opportunity. Let me try this in my best uh, movie trailer guy voice. <clears throat> In a world where society has collapsed and we all must fend for ourselves, one man... <clears throat> okay, no, no. I'm just going to do the rest of this in my regular voice. So if we're living in this Mad Max-style hellscape, the, the thought that, say, gold would be worth anyone, anything to anybody because of some intrinsic value is ludicrous. One... It's heavy, so have fun transporting it around. Two, if you're trying to give me gold in exchange for food, and I don't have the means to smelt it into something useful, I'm going to laugh you out of my compound. And three, if I have weapons and you just have gold and you want to exchange, I'm probably just going to shoot you and take your gold. Because in this world, the only law is survival of the fittest, and the only state is the Hobbesian state of nature. <clears throat> Man, yeah, that's the last time, I promise. To the point, in such a scenario, the, the, the kind that preppers are eagerly anticipating, the only things of value would be food, water, security, and maybe gasoline. Mad Max got a lot right. One last point. You should always take note of who is trying to sell you on any given idea. If, as in this case, the loudest advocates for, for having precious metals in the event of the collapse of society are the same people who are trying to sell you precious metals, then maybe you might want to question their motives. They might just be full of the same contents as their tactical toilet. Yes, the tactical toilet is a thing. It's for sale. Alex Jones hawks them on his show. It's ridiculous. Anyway, tangent complete. The reason that we, as societies around the world, tended to shift to metals as a form of currency is entirely because the use of metal solved a lot of logistical problems that came up from those other forms of currency. First, metals are non-perishable. Aha. See, you, you thought my line about dried cod smelling bad was just a lame joke, but it was really an apt point. It's apt. Apt. <gasps> so unlike some of the other options that we had talked about earlier, metals won't go bad, degrade, or like uh, with the case of salt, be otherwise useful. I mean, imagine how bland food would be if salt and sugar were money. Uh, the other major advantage that metals have over other options is they're divisible and fusible. What that means is 
let's go back to our earlier example where I have wheat and you have cattle and let's say that we agreed that the agreed upon exchange rate the, the price of, of wheat to cattle is two stalks of wheat to one cow I know it's a weird world we live in here but that's the price for our purposes well what if you only wanted one stalk of wheat I mean I can give you a single stalk of wheat but you can't really give me half of a live cow at least not without things getting really intense and traumatic for all parties involved and before you say well I could give you half the meat from the cow don't forget we're in a pure exchange economy under the division of labor so you're not a butcher you're a cattle rancher to divide up the cow's meat we would need to bring in a third party into this exchange and that's only going to make things more complicated so you can't give me half a cow which means that either you have to buy some more wheat than you really want or we can't reach a bargain but with metals as our currency that's not an issue if you want wheat and it goes for two stalks of wheat to one bar of gold uh, again I know that's a crazy price but follow me here uh, and you still only want one stalk of wheat then we can divide your gold bar in half without too much fuss likewise if I've got a bunch of pieces of gold from previous transactions and, and I want to simplify my currency situation I can have those pieces fused into standard bars you can flip that too and, and say that we're exchanging a, a cow for salt and, and and in this case salt is a seasoning not a currency uh, you know it's a, it's a commodity in pure exchange you have no choice but to buy a whole cow's worth of salt at a time because you can't subdivide the cow which may mean depending on the exchange rate that you're purchasing a half ton of salt at a time and outside of Kentucky Fried Chicken who needs that much salt plus if you're talking about something more perishable than salt you're really gonna have problems if instead the exchange is for cod and the exchange rate means that you're gonna wind up with 20 pounds of cod in exchange for one cow most of that fish is going to go bad before you can eat it all that is to say that the use of metal solved a lot of the problems present in the pure exchange economy and that's why they became so prevalently used across all civilizations around the world while Smith doesn't use the the modern criteria metals also meet uh, these standards of, of what make a good currency uh, the the modern standards being that it, it should be hard to earn limited in supply and easy to verify now metals are hard to earn and limited in supply however verification can get a little tricky but Smith actually addresses that a little bit later before we get to that he's going to take us down the progression of the use of metal as a currency so when metals were first introduced they were typically in the form of what Smith calls rude bars which is exactly what it sounds like 
nothing special, no stamp or decoration, just a bar of metal. Now, the metal varied from society to society, likely based mainly on what they had on hand. The Spartans used iron. The Romans used copper. Other places used gold and silver. And this was the norm up until the time of Servius Tullius, who was a uh, king of Rome back in the days when they still had kings. This is pre-Republic, way pre-Caesar. This is old Rome. Uh, Tullius ruled from 575 to 535 BC. And apparently during his reign, he noticed two big problems with the rude bars that were being used. The first problem was with weighing. Smith says, quote, In the precious metals, where a small difference in the quantity makes a great difference in the value, even the business of weighing with proper exactness requires at least very accurate weights and scales. If I'm, not, if, if I'm paying you for your cattle now in, in bars of copper, in order for us to make a transaction, one of us is going to need a scale, and a very, preci very precise scale at that. Now, you're probably not going to trust my scale, because I might mess with the calibration to have it always read a little heavier than true. And I wouldn't trust your scale, because you might do the same thing to have it read light. So we're going to have to once again involve a third party who can be trusted to have an accurately calibrated scale. And we're probably going to have to pay them for their trouble, which is just more complicated than it should be. The other problem comes from what Smith refers to as a saying, which essentially means verification. Uh, he says, quote, unless a part of the metal is fairly melted into the crucible with proper dissolvents, any conclusion that can be drawn from it is extremely uncertain. Unless they went through this tedious and difficult operation, people must always have been liable to the grossest frauds and impositions, and instead of a pound weight of pure silver or pure copper, might receive in exchange for their goods an adulterated composition of the coarsest and cheapest materials which had however, in their outward appearance, been made to resemble those metals. So with just rude bars of copper, what's to stop me from manufacturing something that looks like copper and passing that off to you in exchange for your cattle? Very little. And, and if I am, in fact, pulling a scam like that, you don't have a lot of options for making sure that what I'm giving you is real. As Smith says, the only way to verify a rude bar of metal would be to melt some of it down and perform a bit of early chemistry to make sure that what I'm giving you is in fact pure copper. And of course that would either involve both of us having the tools and, and, and knowing our chemistry, or we'd have to get a third party involved and pay them. Plus, there's the argument over who takes the hit on the quantity of copper being used for verification. Do I give you a pound of copper and you sacrifice a, a, an ounce of it just to make sure it's real? Or do I have to give you a pound plus an ounce of copper for only a pound's worth of cattle? 
to solve these problems, different societies started uh, affixing a stamp to bars of metal, now no longer rude, that served to verify their quality, but not their quantity. And naturally, because the stamp did not cover the entire metal bar, this still left an opening for forgery. Which is why Servius Tullius decided to solve all of these problems when he minted and issued coined money with a stamp that covered the entire coin, the first in Rome's history. This new method served to, to certify that a given coin was not only of verified quality, but also verified quantity, and was, at the time, difficult to alter. Now, this was a boon to commerce. Despite what you may hear from ultra-libertarian and conspiracy theorists, the government minting its own currency is incredibly helpful to the economy because it relieves all of, all of us involved in commerce the trouble of weighing and assaying on our own. With a government-minted currency that is reasonably hard to counterfeit, we can all trust that it is what it says it is and get down to spending it rather than having to constantly verify it. Of course, that's not to say that this government-controlled currency wasn't without its own share of new and unique issues. After all, when the government controls the minting of currency, and the government gets hard up for funds, but doesn't really want to raise taxes, then the government naturally does what you'd expect. They reduce the weight of the underlying metal in their coins, produce more of them, and cause their relative value to plummet. We know it as inflation. To anyone who thinks that a, a precious metal standard for modern currency is a surefire way to prevent inflation, you should really read up on your history. Smith lays out, in some detail, in the way only Adam Smith can, several times in which various governments, in an attempt to create more money to cover expenses and debts, inflated their currency. And these were all back in a time where you didn't need a precious metal standard because the coins were the precious metal. He says, quote, From the time of Charlemagne among the French and from that of William the Conqueror among the English, the proportion between the pound, the shilling, and the penny seems to have been uniformly the same as at present, though the value of each has been very different. For in every country of the world, I believe, the avarice and injustice of princes and sovereign states abusing the confidence of their subjects have by degree diminished the real quantity of metal which has been originally contained by their coins. This trick was typically pulled when princes and sovereign states were in debt. By reducing the weight of pure metal in their coins, they could make more of them and thus pay off those debts at least in terms of the number of pounds, the, the, the coin, not the weight, owed. Of course, doing so would reduce the overall value of the coin, but that was their creditor's problem. Smith says, quote, 
Such operations, therefore, have always proved favorable to the debtor and ruinous to the creditor, and have sometimes produced a greater and more universal revolution in the fortunes of private persons than could have been occasioned by a very great public calamity. Now, famously, revered 20th century economist Milton Friedman was fond of saying, The reason we have inflation in the United States, or for that matter, anywhere in the world, is because these pieces of paper and the accompanying book entries, or their counterparts in other nations, are growing more rapidly than the quantity of goods and services produced. The truth is, inflation is made in one place and one place only, here in Washington. This is the only place where there are presses like this that turn out these pieces of paper we call money. This is a place where the power resides to determine how rapidly the amount of money shall increase. Well, Dr. Friedman, that's a bold claim, but I'm afraid that, and <clears throat> I will give you all a chance to turn the volume down a little, Smith said it first. Smith wraps up the chapter by teasing a, a very interesting point, one that serves as the underpinning of, of the next three chapters of the book, and it revolves around a question of value. He asks, quote, What are the rules which men naturally observe in exchanging them either for money or for one another? These rules determine what may be called the relative or exchangeable value of goods. And that brings us back to this idea that I started the podcast talking about. And it can be a bit of a mind bender when you start to think about it. I think that a lot of people out there have, have it set in their minds that, that money has a value of its own. And that that singular value is somehow incredibly important. But it doesn't. Not really. Money has a relative value, because money, by itself, has no value. It's paper, or, or metal. You can't eat it, you can't wear it. It doesn't, by itself, provide shelter or comfort. Its value lies in the fact that you can exchange it for things that you can eat and where, things that do provide shelter and comfort. The mistake that people make is, is to think of money as a commodity, something to be pursued and amassed. But it's not money that you really want, it's the things that money buys that you want. Those are the things that, that you are really pursuing and amassing when you break it down like that. Money is no more than a medium of exchange. And, I, and I'm sure you're all getting sick of hearing me say that. But this is a hugely critical idea. And I need to make sure that, that you're all coming along with me on it. Smith illustrates this point by subdividing the idea of value into two categories. He says that, quote, the word value it is to be observed, has two different meanings, and sometimes expresses the utility of some particular object, and sometimes the power of purchasing other goods which the possession of that object conveys. Now he calls these two categories of value, value in use, and value in exchange. 
and notes that they're often in opposition to each other. That is to say that things that have a high value of use often have a low value of exchange, and things that have a high value of exchange often have a low value of use. He uses the example of comparing water and diamonds. Water may very well be the most useful thing in the world. We require it to live, as well as to perform a great deal of other functions in our lives. We drink it, we use it to cook, clean, wash, grow crops, on and on. But you can't purchase anything with water, at least outside of Mad Max Fury Road. And even if you could, you wouldn't want to. Water is heavy, and to buy anything with it, you'd have to transport around gallons of the stuff. On the other hand, we have diamonds, which have a great value of exchange. Diamonds are valuable, but not because they provide us with any of the necessities of life. You can't eat diamonds. However, diamonds, like metals, are non-perishable and readily accepted by most everyone. So they have value in that they can be used to exchange for the items that you really need and want. And that value of exchange is critical to our economy, but it doesn't make diamonds any more useful in the practical sense. In the end, those things that have high value of exchange are, are less about themselves as a, as a commodity and, and more about their function in our society. They allow easy and rapid exchanges in the marketplace, and that is their real value. Look at our economy today, where we use printed pieces of paper as our medium of exchange. The paper isn't itself valuable. But because we all agree to accept it, it becomes incredibly valuable relative to the things that we want to purchase using it. In fact, to, to, to drive the point home a little more, if we look at the way we purchase things today, we're actually using money, physical money, less and less. How often do you pay cash for something? How many purchases just today have you made with your debit card or credit card or PayPal or Venmo or whatever kind of exchange system you might use? Increasingly, we're not so much using money as our medium of exchange anymore so much as we're using the idea of money. The point is that what is being exchanged does not matter. Not really just so long as we all agree to accept it. Hugs could be currency. Okay, well, not really, because the inflation rate on hugs would be insane. But y you take my meaning. It's that central idea, though, that, that, that I think a lot of people just have a hard time wrapping their minds around that... because it's a little... Uh, I don't know... It, it bordering on the metaphysical. They would prefer to think of the world as, as much more solid than it really is. In searching around for an example, I, I came across a, a blog called uh, Adask's Law, 
that uh, had an entry which provided analysis on this very same chapter of the Wealth of Nations. And, and this guy interpreted it entirely as Smith criticizing inflation and government-minted currencies. Uh, now, I won't do a point-by-point dissection of, of why this person is oh so wrong in their analysis, but it's just an example of what I've been talking about when it, when it comes to money. People tend to get really wrapped around the axle thinking about a, a kind of pure valuation of money. And they forget that money only really has value in it, in the exchange. I, I'll give you one more example, and 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 it's kind of extreme, but but only to make a point. Let's say that we live in an economy that has only one dollar in it, and in this economy, bread costs one dollar per loaf. Now, if the government in this system here issues a second dollar and inflates the currency, now your dollar's value has dropped by 50%. But if at the same time the price of bread drops by 75% because there's more bread available, then the price of bread is now 25 cents, and your dollar, even though it's only worth half of what it used to be, can now buy twice as much bread. Again. It's kind of simplistic and extreme example, but it's meant to illustrate that it it's not the absolute value of the money that's the most critical issue. It can be very important. Again, we're not dismissing the importance of money or its value, but it's not the end-all be-all. The critical factor is what is the relative value of your money. Put another way, Really, what is the purchasing power of your money? Because at the end of the day, you don't actually want the money. It's just money. You want all the things that the money buys. So you always have to consider the price of goods relative to the value of money. The truth of how we're all doing economically lies in the link between those two things. Smith wraps up by, by teasing the next three chapters, which will further explore his ideas about valuation. And we'll get into those in the coming weeks. Uh, he, he does have kind of a funny moment of self-awareness when he, he talks about how his explanation of valuation may seem overly long. I know, shocking. But he's okay with that. Again, shocking. Uh, because, quote, I am always willing to run some hazard of being tedious in order to be sure that I am perspicuous. Well, Adam, uh, since we're four chapters in and only 3% of the way through your book, I think it's safe to say that you have hazarded on that quite a bit and that's our show as always if you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong come on out join our uh, Facebook group where you can post a comment suggest a topic for a future episode uh, be sure to take a minute and give the podcast a rating and review on iTunes 
I yeah, again, it may not seem uh, like that big of a deal, but those those ratings and especially those reviews uh, really get this get the podcast bumped up uh, on the charts and, and noticed by more and more people. So it is hugely helpful. Uh, thanks, uh, as always, to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. If you're listening to this podcast because you're interested in economics, but uh, you also have a, a kind of a thing for wedding planning, you should definitely check out my other podcast, Let's Plan a Wedding, where my fiance and I discuss all the things involved in planning our wedding, as well as mm, weddings in general. Uh, a lot less Smith, a lot more bouquet tossing on that one. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with topic episode and then back in two weeks for book one, chapter five of the wealth of nations. With that, I've been Dave Yost and this has been okay. Let me tell you why you're wrong. When I die, they'll want to put my face on money. If there were money in the future instead of just hugs. Greens are out.